Sego, Sebo Guego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. Welcome to our second season of Yohat De Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast. We're recording this on Six Nations territory. And our first guest today is Dr. Michael Dockstader. And um, Michael is a colleague of mine in the Justice Circle, and he's also a, an educator, and I'll let him explain more about what he's doing currently. Um, Sego, Mike. Hi, Lisa. I'm happy to be here today. And uh, my role at Ryerson University is in creative industries where we teach, mostly I teach writing, but it's also about um, one of the mottos that we have in our faculty is uh, to teach students that uh, why we're here is we want to make the world a better place. And uh, why would we want to make it any worse? And how do we do that? Well, we uh, respond to society and we think of things that help make our world a better place. Oh, that sounds interesting. And also writing sounds interesting to me because I'm a writer. Well, that's the funny part of it, too, is that um, the, the literacy skills that come out of the high school system and so on, we have a lot of uh, reparative reparations to do with uh, uh, getting people to just even write a sentence, even write a paragraph. So I find I have to uh, do a lot of um, writing instruction in first, second, and third, even third and fourth year. And that even goes up to graduate students. I've been on graduate committees where I've uh, had a lot of uh, work with students, uh, graduate students, about uh, writing uh, clearly, writing with focused intent. Anyways, so that's mm-hmm. one of the areas I do. And because of my background as a as a university scholar, writer, but I've also written for newspapers, magazines, I've written poetry, songs, screenplays, I've done all the different genres of writing. So when I when I pose that I can teach writing, it comes from that diverse background. Yeah, and um, it sounds like a really interesting course that I may even like to take. 
you can always you can always get more um, educated, even if you're in doing something for a long period of time, right? Yeah, and especially with our our people, there's a lot of resistance to reading and writing because of the old uh, prejudices against what occurred out of uh, the education system or the government education uh, programs that they actually placed on our people that includes Indian day schools, Indian residential schools, and so on. And a lot of that has to do with uh, 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 a suspicion about education. And it's actually a suspicion about our own intelligence because we did have writing systems that were in existence long before those guys got here in 1492. We had Mm -hmm. uh, diverse types of communication that go all the way back to binary counting and Mayan codices that are in Dresden, were in Dresden and in Madrid, uh, as well as wampum belts, button blankets, Navajo belts, beadwork. All of those were uh, depictions of sign language, actually. And we had, a, a, oh, I mean, the, the history of communications among our people goes all the way back to uh, the Mayas and their their communication system, but even our own uh, hand signing. Hand signing is an invention of ours, where we would be able to communicate with each other uh, with our language of diplomacy being the sign language, while uh, we could not speak Ojibwe or Cree or, or uh, Lakota or whatever the other language was, we could actually understand their signing. So there's a uh, a, a tradition among our people about communication that has been made suspicious by uh, uh, the education systems that, that were uh, used by the uh, Canadian government. And do you think that, you know, in the 1900s when we had a, uh, a real influx of, of anthropologists writing about us, you know, that's where a lot of writing about us was created for the um, textbooks and such. Do you think that really um, made us think that we need to now do our own writing? Yeah, and that's the uh, um, the whole focus in the last 30 years in, in uh, higher learning has been to indigenize uh, aspects of higher learning to actually... Uh, look at and be critical uh, of uh, the anthropologists and archaeologists of the 1900s who favored, and actually they're the ones that turn us into a, a religion rather than a, a, a nation of or a political state of people with international rights. Uh, they viewed us simply as contrite believers in tribal religions and put us in with the Amish and the Mennonites uh, under the protection of the nation state that way, rather than as a people who have formed international relationships with other international peoples, right? Mm-hmm. They were viewing us from their their worldview lens. Yeah. 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 Um, well, that's really interesting. And so I know that you have um, a lot of knowledge about things such as men's roles in the Haudenosaunee um, civilization. So that's what I really wanted to focus on today, if you could talk about that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'll just start off with saying that um, 
recent research has focused on murdered and missing Indigenous people. And one of the parts of that that's come up in the last seven years, I think, is research that shows that, yes, there are documented cases of uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, and they had an inquiry over that, and it was based on 1,200 uh, documented cases uh, by police of uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. But the research is beginning to show that there are three times, four times as many murdered and missing Indigenous men, uh, up around 4,000. So that the idea is, oh yeah, and also the crime rate. Uh, murder rates in Canada over the last three years show that there were uh, uh, three times as many Indian Native men, Indigenous men, murdered in Canada, and that represented about uh, one-third of the entire murder statistics in Canada. So that there is something about uh, the Indigenous male that has... uh, um, uh, They become an invisible minority and uh, and are often just completely uh, ignored in terms of what has faced them. And that's resulted, of course, in uh, in prisons and jails filled with Indigenous men that have had a hard time and have done uh, sometimes pretty awful things, but also sometimes just dumb things uh, in our communities. So that's how I will start in the discussion by painting a picture about where we are right now. Okay. <clears throat> But in culturally, you know, I mean, it's, uh, the idea that uh, what we had in uh, men's roles in the community has been completely, um, well, more or less uh, overshadowed by external agencies. For example, and one of the stories that I often talk about is uh, the uh, policing that took place inside our communities a uh, hundred years ago or more. And that's based on the word sagodienas, that they grabbed them. And it's a word that sometimes is used to apply to police policing today. Sagodienas is that they grabbed them. But that was a process for policing inside our communities that uh, that was used. And I remember when I was a kid, uh, elders talking about how that worked. And I'll just explain and describe it to you. That in those days, um, if somebody was troubling their family, we'll just say Bill. Bill was uh, had, was being complained about by the women in the community who were, you know, saying things like Bill is was pretty keep treating his family and his wife and his children pretty awfully. And so there would be no request put across the floor to men to take action, but men would listen. And as as the way they tell tell what happened was is that uh, um, the men would listen and they would say what uh, somehow there would be a process for them to decide what they're going to have to do about Bill. So on a given day, uh, they would take and they would uh, put Bill. Uh, they would put pillowcases over their head like masks. And they would go find Bill. And uh, often disguising their voices, they mm-hmm. would uh, grab a Bill, blindfold Bill, put him on a horse, or put him in the car, and drive way out in the middle of nowhere. He wouldn't know where he was. 
And this is how they tell the story. They would take him, strip him down, tie him to a tree, and whip him with uh, red willow whips is one of the the uh, instruments that was used. And they would say, Bill, we hear that you've been uh, treating your family and your children in a bad way. And so we're telling you that you need to stop and we're going to leave you here now. And if you, if you make it home, you have a lot to think about. And they would leave him tied to the tree naked, blindfolded, mm-hmm. and they would drive away. And so I've heard stories when I was a, a kid about <laughs> elders talking where they would actually see somebody running through the field naked and they would go, oh, he got grabbed. They don't know mm-hmm. who these uh, men were that did the grabbing, but we have a name for them. And in, uh, and in the Mohawk language, they were called Oyahonda, the tobacco hanging. And they were like ninjas or samurais or some, uh, uh, they were not known. They were in uh, a, a secret uh, function of the, of the men to actually grab somebody to straighten them out. And, of course, after the RCMP came in and took over and uh, uh, began to uh, police the reserve that way uh, at Six Nations, uh, those uh, uh, incidents um, they uh, abated in quite a lot of ways, but so the function of, of policing uh, done by uh, by men who listened to what was going on to straighten people out uh, was one of the things that men did that uh, they don't do anymore. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I never really heard that story because I, I just was born in the time of... Um, you know the the RCMP. I we would hear stories about the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that was the way we we policed our our community. And were these these men were just volunteers who did this, right? As far as I know, I don't know. Uh, they didn't didn't actually talk about the <laughs> recruitment or the how how people came to be Oyokondo, the tobacco hanging. They would just say that some there would somebody would get grabbed by people who were blindfolded, and they would uh, uh, take and conduct the the. Uh, uh, disciplinary action uh, themselves, uh, uh, with with the idea that uh, the individual had a choice to make. Mm-hmm. That it was left to the individual that you have a choice to make if you make it home uh, uh, about uh, changing the way that you treat people. And I have heard that that's really that was a kind of a form of banishment, not from the whole community, but from their their neighborhood, I guess. Yeah, well, banishment was a, a, a part of what went on at a lot of the communities, which was this: we don't have the facilities, or we don't have um, the the processes for dealing with people who do the really bad, indictable crimes, right? The murder, rape, and theft, the, mm-hmm. the big the big ones. So, mm-hmm. what would happen is, in many in many instances, they talked about it, where they would have somebody that would be banished, but they would let the outside authorities know where they were banishing like, banishing them too right mm-hmm. so in other words so here's here's bill who really did a bad thing an, uh, an indictable crime and so we're going to let the external authorities know that we're banishing bill and it'll be at sour springs road and third line is where he's going to be released and banished from the community and then the external authorities would pick him up there mm, okay and 
you know, some communities are, are bringing banishment back to their communities in today's times. Well, that's, that's not a hard thing to do because uh, the way the trends are going now, uh, banishment, exclusion, and all those practices that happen on on the reserve mean that right now, seventy percent of Six Nations people don't live at Six Nations. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the actual statistics are hard to to uh, for them to verify. But uh, uh, you know, when you have uh, say a COVID pandemic on the reserve, it seems like uh, a number that's manageable when you have 46 cases with a ban list of 27,000 people on it, but only 11,000 people live on the reserve. So that that is significant, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and the idea that uh, um, the, the notion that uh, banishment includes uh, segregation and exclusion from processes for by political uh, for political purposes on the reserve is one reason why there is uh, so much movement off the reserve now. They expect, you know, that the population from the reserve communities will be around 80 percent will have moved uh, off the reserve and into urban settings. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Well, the land base isn't getting any bigger. That's for sure. That's right. But uh, I'm going to talk about a project I have. And okay. It's one we talked about at the Justice Circle when it when the uh, Superior Court of Justice in Brantford and and the agencies that were involved with uh, corrections. Mm-hmm. And about five years ago, when they had conversations about it, I had a project that I'd been working on forever, and it just had no place to land because it was uh, uh, before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, before UNDRIP, and it was, was something that I'd noticed about abandoned, neglected, and abused people, and mm-hmm. that uh, we, I designed a a camp, a a place for them to go to uh, uh, work with people to heal themselves, right? So mm-hmm. I I designed out of that a, a project called uh, Centers of Excellence Dedicated to Indigenous Recovery, CEDAR. And in part of that, and I gave the presentation at the Justice uh, Conference over at uh, New Credit a couple of years ago, when uh, Justice Geffen Edward and Senator Murray Sinclair and uh, Justice uh, Harry LaForme present, and the whole corrections community from Ontario uh, had representatives there. But my my uh, project is about producing a um, correctional place that is divergent, and it's a... Uh, uh, a place that is based on the idea that uh, uh, one of the justices who works in, in the system that we know uh, came up to me and, and we were having a talk. And he said, you know, let me tell you a story. Uh, here's a guy. He got, he was drinking and he crashed his car into the ditch. And uh his two passengers were injured. They were both his children. Now, I have to send him to jail. Do you have a place for him to go? Because he is not dumb, or he is not a criminal. He just did something dumb. And the result was injury to 
couple of innocent children just because he was having a dispute with his wife or his partner. And I was thinking about that, you know, when I had this uh, uh, idea about the camp for uh, abandoned, neglected, and abused children, I thought, okay, there's a there's a bigger thing going on here. And so I sketched out an idea of a uh, a place where we would take uh, people who just did dumb things and have the court system assign surety over to what I called Ganada College, by the way, just a working title. Mm-hmm. Ganada College would be a place where these people would have their surety assigned to the people running the college, and they would go there for one year. So uh, the idea is, is that you take uh, a cohort of these people, these these men, and you have them all processed around the same time in July and August, so that at the court hearing, then they're assigned custody over to Ganada College. They're taken, and I, 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 I don't even know if it's joking, but I know that one of the ideas would be to blindfold them, maybe, like mm-hmm. the old Sagodienas, mm-hmm. and drive them way around so that they ended up at a, at a facility they wouldn't know where they were, wouldn't know where they were. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Anyways, all of these kinds of things are thinking about it. But the first place uh, they would end up is as at an eco-village that's based on indigenous architectural forms. And the faculty and the healing staff and all the people there in this, in this community would work with this cohort of, of men. So they would start in, uh, have their surety assigned to the college in late August. They would be there September 1st. And the first thing that uh, uh, people would say around the community is, well, we don't want it on the reserve because who wants a bunch of criminals hanging around there and, and this kind of a thing, right? And I, and how are you going to keep them there? And I said, well, uh, well, here's the way it works. It's all about the choices. Uh, learning about making choices. Mm-hmm. Making choices about looking after themselves. Uh, uh, being treated the way they want it to be treated and uh, staying out of the way of people uh, that way. But here's the choice they have to make. You stay here at Ganada College with us or you leave. Those are, that's your first choice that you're going to make. If you leave, you're going back over into that system. You're going into the sailing ship system. You're going into the mainstream correction system. You're making the choice. If you stay here with us, we'll also look after you. So that's the first choice, see? And that's the, the two-row, the idea mm-hmm. that we have uh, two, two, two societies sitting side by side. But those people, those men who are assigned over to the college, have, have an immediate choice to make to stay or leave, and that's their choice. And then that's what the almost the whole uh, first part of the the training is all about, is choices of eating clean food, drinking water, uh, exercising, uh, 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 detoxifying their life. And that usually takes about three months or 18 weeks is what they usually say for a physiological and a mental uh, uh, lifestyle change. And so that, so a lot of that first three months is is about uh, learning how to cook good food, 
maybe some exercise. We're going to go into the bush and drag out all the downed wood so we don't have to cut anything down. There's plenty of wood out in the forest. We're going to drag it out of there, get some exercise. We're going to learn how to dig a well. Uh, we're going to learn how to dig food pits. We're going to sweat a lot. Uh, we're going to end. But you've got uh, men or healers or counselors available who will uh, have a carefully planned or carefully uh, itemized uh, scaffold for having uh, encouraging people to uh, um, think about the choices that they make and think about themselves. And so the, uh, in that counseling and in that healing process, uh, it could be native things like uh, dancing and singing, or maybe it could be sweats. Uh, uh, but the idea is, uh, the feeling is, is that one of the big problems that people, uh, we're having in our communities is uh, nutrition. And that we're we're not healthy people. We eat horribly, and so the idea of uh, uh, going to a, maybe a plant-based diet, uh, and drinking lots of clean water, uh, exercise, and sweat uh, is the uh, first part of healing. Healing the body, so that the body will tell the mind how to heal. And in that process, then they were, they'd be exposed to people making cradle boards, uh, digging a well, making a, a pole lodge, or log, uh, learning how to make uh, hardwood nails, uh, uh, any type of, of the indigenous knowledges that are talked about and, and, and that are so diverse that there are many practitioners of these things. How do you uh, make drills that are made from stone and uh, with bows that uh, create uh, places where hardwood nails are put into timber and timber construction and how to make a eco-village or a sustainable life system. And that's the idea that they then become practitioners over the year. They become, uh, uh, they, they learn how to do indigenous culture and become cultural educators. So when we go through the through the cleaning them up, then we begin the process of teaching them stuff, how to do things. And we have bring in skilled uh, practitioners of all the indigenous arts and sciences to have them learn then. So that after the year, after the year of having custody assigned to the surety Ganada College, these men clean up, uh, learn about themselves. Uh, they uh, learn about uh, having a clear mind about self-protection and boundaries and, and so on, and that they also become practitioners of indigenous arts and sciences, that once they graduate, and we'll say it's with a Ryerson diploma, we'll say, or a certificate from a, uh, a an institution like Six Nations Polytechnic, something like that. Anyway, something legitimate and real so that when they do graduate and we go back to court, then the justice, we're there as the surety of, of a cohort of men, and we say individually, one by one, has, have they satisfied uh, the requirements for their um, term with Ganada College? And vouching for that as a, as a di diploma-receiving graduate of Ganada College, they are cultural practitioners who actually can teach cultural education back in the communities and with the request then that they be released 
uh, without record or however that would work. Now, I don't know. I'm not a... Uh, that's where pe- people like Lisa Van Avery come in and others who are practitioners in legal and corrections that would be able to say what the wording might be or how we might go about it. I don't know about that. All I know is that I've built uh, lodges. I've built, uh, uh, grown uh, intercrop inter- gardens. I've... Uh, 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 you know, smoked meat and all that stuff. So I have some area where I have a particular practice that I could teach as well as uh, uh, talking and uh, communicating and storytelling and all that storying that's part of current current, current practice. Uh, but in terms of the technicalities of how the legal system works, that, that's where I would defer to all of the uh, practitioners in that profession to say, how do we do this, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's what I've been thinking about. And uh, uh, it seems to me that um, there's two parts to this. One is looking after our own, which is something I'll come back to in a second. Mm-hmm. But the other part, the other part of it is, is that you know uh, the white roots of peace were planted among our people with roots that spread around the whole world, and that type of knowledge about how to live without electricity and and fossil fuel, I think, is absolutely necessary now, because we're uh, there's so much going on in the world with climate change, with geological and meteorological incidents that are happening all over the earth, that uh, we have to be uh, exemplars or practitioners of indigenous knowledge rather than just talking about it and performing it, you know. We have to actually mm-hmm. start doing it and then be, be able to go to the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of the United States and say, here we are, we've got a plan about how we need to change the way we live now uh, or else we're all goners. That's that, I think that's the bottom line. We uh, end up having a, a group of people work together and show that it is quite possible to go back to the way we lived 800 years ago, 500 years ago, 400 years ago, without hydro and gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, also in terms of over-incarceration of Indigenous people, we need these thinking outside-the-box solutions, you know, solutions such as this. Because um, we're dealing with over-incarceration, you know, at an alarming rate of Indigenous people. And I think if the justice system um, thought of these types of things, land-based learning solutions, you know, it wouldn't, if you looked at the cost, it would be comparable. What do you think? Well, it might even go down because you're uh, living in a society. We'll just say, you know, you make a a 200-foot-long long long log house with compartments and and, uh, common areas with uh, uh, thermal mass uh, heating and all of that. And so Mm -hmm. uh, people live in these basically, you know, like the Onondaga longhouse is is, is made out of logs and it's, I don't know, uh, 50 feet long or something like that. What if we made one that was four times that, 200 feet long, and we put uh, quarters inside there where people actually lived. And so uh, we then go back to an old way of living that doesn't have electricity and gas. It has uh, 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 thermal 
thermal masses that uh, were used in old times. We also have a cookhouse and wells, uh, probably black water, gray water discharge down into the old compost uh, pools that were used for the, the gardens. Uh, say we build our village on top of a mound and we require then earthworks dug out of the ground that fill up with water. They become great big pools and lagoons that are used mm-hmm. to water the gardens and water the uh, the orchards that we have there, uh, that we have, uh, um, you know, uh, a, a sustainable life system that is is all about uh, encouraging people to uh, uh, live, a, live a, in an environment that is quiet. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you would, it would be successful because people that um, experience the criminal justice system, if they have a choice of, of if you present them with a choice that um, they could strengthen their cultural connection, they will choose that. They want to do that. Yeah, yeah. that's part of us backing off that says, well, you're not a good Indian because you don't do all this kind of, like the culture police are all over the place telling people what it, what, what it means to be a good native and, and or uh, or honorable or whatever, you know, and we remove all of that uh, value judgment and say, it is not up to me to decide what type of a person you are. It's up to you to decide what per- type of person you you want to be, and that's your choice. That is your mm-hmm. human. That is your human choice to decide, right? And we're here to f- help you find your gift. And like all Native education is about that as well. You hear that. Uh, uh, helping somebody find their gift, and then there are others who are practitioners of that gift who will help them give their gift, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's so many things that um, traditional practices we had in the past that we, we that were valuable, you know, and that we really should should embrace once again. And uh, there's a there's an environment I think for that uh, that thinking now that says that uh, um, would it cost a lot of money to do this? No, it wouldn't cost a lot of money because what we would be seeking is self sufficiency of that community. So Ganada College, as much as possible, would be self sufficient. That it would look at uh, uh, how we're going to heat these long houses. How are we going to uh, cook our food? Uh, how are we going to develop a, a, a village that can actually survive? Uh, and see, when they've had these experiments in the past among our people, right, at Ganyange and other, and other ones where they've tried to do uh, small settlements to uh, go back to the old way, they forget one thing that was absolutely central. You can't do it with 30 people. You can't do it with 50 people. And that's mm-hmm. the mistake that they made. They tried to do these types of uh, restructuring projects with a, with a small sample. But one thing that we learned from archaeologists and anthropologists is the optimum size for a self-sustainable village is 300 people. You have mm-hmm. all the indigenous knowledge or you have all the local knowledge that you need to, to survive as a village with 300 people. And it starts with a very social thing, too. Uh, you can go days on end without talking to the same person twice when you've got 300 people. Mm-hmm. So the the idea of the human interactions then changes the whole dynamic uh, that you can uh, uh, actually uh, live in a, a small society 
and not talk to the same person twice, which means that, you know, I mean, you, you, like they're probably finding out uh, now in the pandemic that people are going bonkers because they're stuck in the same house with the same people day after day after day, right? Mm-hmm. So that that tells you that what you need to do is to diversify the human contact in a uh, in an environment that allows for maybe uh, a full time, uh, not a college. Uh, people that live, eat, and work there, and dwell there, of 300 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that sounds very interesting, um, and I and I wish you success in moving forward with it. Well, that's the idea. Is is that um, it's it's it has been heard. It just I haven't, uh, and I've got documents written down, and I've got proposals written down, and I got sketches of what it might look like, and uh, where it might be. The you know between Guelph and uh, and Saugeen, say up in that area, there's lots of places where it's open and uh, people will be isolated. Uh, the idea of uh, uh, disenfranchising or or becoming detoxified from modern society is is the big part of it that is the hardest part of it right Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah for sure well this has been a great conversation with you Yahweh I appreciate the opportunity and like I say the uh the uh, prisons are filled with, and this is what they, uh, you know, you talk to the Aboriginal liaison officers, and I know, know known quite a few of them that have worked from here all the way up to Kingston and so on. They've said this, our prisons, uh, the prisons are filled with men, our men and our women who are basically just beating each other's brains out. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're our own uh, enemy in that way, and so... To actually change the way we do our look after our own, and I'll tell you, um, this is what women have said. I was at women's meetings over the last three or four years, listening to the way they're talking. Here's the three things that have been on the top of what the mothers have said. Number one on the list, we have to find a way of looking after our own. Mm-hmm. Number two on the list, drugs. Mm-hmm. These, these are the, the heavy pharmaceuticals, not the psychotropics that people usually associate with that, but uh, the heavy-duty ones, right? And, and this goes into, and you know, the, the hard part of it is the rape drugs and the fentanyl and those types of really hard drugs. The women have said that is uh, created, um, that um, we have to do something about that. It creates an industry as well where you have young people participating in that industry to, to uh, or in other industries like uh, uh, thefts and so on to buy drugs, right? This yeah. is how they talked about it. And the third one is uh, uh, how are we going to feed ourselves? Oh, so here's sovereignty, yes. Yeah, so I, I, hear, I hear the women talk and I say, okay, so uh, looking after ourselves, okay, Ganada College does that. Uh, drugs, okay, we remove people who are just doing dumb things to buy drugs and uh, they're basically hurting themselves and we take them there along with others. Okay, and that's number two. Number three, they feed themselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, I go right. I heard what the mothers have said about uh, uh, what is important to them, and it's pretty. I think it's pretty universal. Uh, I, I don't know if anybody would disagree with that. You know that mm-hmm. the top three things are drugs, looking after ourselves, and feeding ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
if we can um, conquer those three, I think we'll be in good shape. And that's that's what I think the Ganada College experiment would be all about, is actually Mm -hmm. doing that, or attempting to do that with uh, a a process that involves the participation of uh, corrections and the justice system. Well, hopefully, um, someone who's influential in that area will hear our podcast and um, maybe say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. How can I get involved? Yes, I agree. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so Nyawe, so much for being with us, our our first guest on our second season, Dr. Michael Dockstader, and I look forward to talking with you again. Sure. I appreciate it. There's lots of things we can talk about, so uh, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, explain what I have in mind. Okay. Yahweh. Yahweh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Negasunha, The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Van Every. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.